Hello, and welcome to The Learn It Podcast, a weekly conversation with global education leaders for people who are passionate about the future of learning. I'm your host, reporter and author, Jenny Anderson. Our guest today is Graham Laurie, who I'm just going to go out on a limb and call a modern day superhero. Graham is a science teacher by training, but became the head of partnerships at Seven Oaks before joining the ACS International Schools in that same role. It's my opinion that Graham is transforming what partnership in schools can be, what service actually means and what it needs to look like if it's going to be impactful for those serving as well as those communities served. Graham has a 16-year-old son who's high-functioning autistic, and he himself is also autistic. We talk here about a project that he's working on, creating a video series that will document neurodiversity from the perspective of teachers, parents, children, as well as young adults transitioning from school into work. He wants every stakeholder to see and feel what it's like to be the other, the parent up at 3 a.m. with a violent child, the teacher struggling with 30 kids, the child who just wants space and quiet and instead gets an army trying to manage him. The series will provide expert commentary, real life people, and useful hacks, including many of the ones Graham developed to support his son, Joe. We spent years and years and years going through that whole process of diagnosis and eventually ended up in a special school. But through that process, I've got to know a lot of people that are in that space and struggling. And there is an opportunity to put something out there to support the children, the parents, and the teachers, and to help each of them understand how the other feels. What you need to know about Graham is that he's a technological genius and he uses his autism as a superpower to embark on projects which neurotypical people simply would not touch. He created the UK's largest school-based festival of science, offering 15,000 state primary school students a week-long STEM extravaganza at Seven Oaks. One year, there was a live link to the International Space Station, which required that Graham book two satellites. He's organizing a STEAM day at a massive UK amusement park in 2022 for 10,000 kids who will attend for free. He was awarded an MBE, member of the Order of the British Empire, for education services during the pandemic, for work building respirators and 3D printers, and creating online resources for schools to help implement remote learning. And one, the voice coach from The Crown explained how to engage an audience via a screen. He also applies that superpower at home. He programmed the lights in his house to dim, and all of Joe's devices to go off at a particular time, finding ways to minimize the emotional conflict involved in making Joe do something he didn't want to do. And there's a teddy bear you definitely want to hear about. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Graham Laurie, thank you for joining us. You're very welcome. Nice to be here. I'd love to start with the Neurodiversity Project. Where did the idea for this come from? So it originated from my own personal experiences, I guess. I am autistic. My son is high-functioning autistic. And my son went to a normal primary school in the UK and struggled with it. And so we, we spent years and years and years going through that whole process of diagnosis and schools and having to pick him up and all sorts of issues. And eventually ended up in a special school, which was really good for him. But through that process, I've got to know a lot of parents got to know a lot of teachers, got to know, uh, you know, a lot of people that are sort of in that space and struggling. And so I'm now in a position, you know, from a, a partnerships perspective, where I've got people who work for film companies who want to work with us. And there is an opportunity to put something out there to support the children, the parents and the teachers, and to help each of them understand how the other feels and, you know, perhaps give some hints and tips and ideas from from experts. A little bit more about Joe. When was he diagnosed? Why did it take so long to get him in a special school? And what did you feel the impact of being in a mainstream school for those years were? 
my wife and I spotted it quite early on. I'm a trained teacher. My wife is in healthcare. And so when he was four or five, you know, we could tell that, you know, something wasn't normal, I guess. You know, I don't like using the word normal, but, you know, at that, that point, we weren't as aware as we could have been. And so he was struggling at school. He was getting sent home. He was having difficulties in social situations. And it just, you know, it flagged up that he, he was autistic. And, and my wife and I knew it. So we started the process to get him diagnosed. It was a tough time. You know, my wife and I won't get into bed until three o'clock in the morning, dealing with some, some you know, quite violent outbursts. He was getting sent home from school every, every other day. And of course, as a parent of a child like that, every day when you pick them up from school, you get a teacher saying, could we just have a word? And so you very quickly become known as the parent of that child. Other people, of course, think your child is, is just naughty. But of course, he he can't help himself you know, when he's put in certain situations. And in a neurotypical school, teachers, you know, when they get into difficulties with a, a child like that, a child that's potentially being quite violent, you know, one of their rules is to have as many people as possible there to assist. And of course, the more people that are there, the worse it gets. And so you end up in this, this downward spiral where things happen and then they escalate quickly. And the procedures that are in place in the state sector make it worse. The teachers have a lot of other students to think about as well. And so we ended up trying desperately to get him diagnosed, to get him into a special school, a school that could provide for his needs. And we couldn't get it. I mean, we went round and round in circles. And it got to the point where, you know, the, the school couldn't teach him. We couldn't get him into another school. We couldn't get a diagnosis. So, so we went private. And we spent about £3,000 getting him a private diagnosis from an amazing specialist. They did the whole works, you know, brain scans, everything. And it was beyond shadow of a doubt he was high-functioning autistic. Uh, lots of conversations about medication. We went through a process of, you know, working out whether we wanted to medicate our child, because <laughs> that's quite a hard thing to do. But we did, and we saw a huge benefit from it. But then at the end of all that, when we thought we, you know, could see light at the end of the tunnel, his diagnosis was refused by the state sector because it was deemed that we'd paid for it. And so we had to go around that cycle again. And, you know, having spotted that he was autistic ourselves at age four or five, he didn't actually get diagnosed until he was 10, nine, 10 years old. And by which time his entire primary school, you know, years had been wasted. Well, not wasted. I mean, the teachers did as, as good a job as they possibly could, but in an environment that wasn't suitable for him. And so when he eventually was diagnosed, he, he went into a special school with increased staffing, with special procedures. I mean, it was something that changed our lives. And then when he was 11, the school realised the pressure that was on my wife and I, and they took him into boarding for one night a week to give us respite. And that's where we got our lives back a little bit. And since then, he's been in, in special education and he's only now at the age of 16 gone into a neurotypical college. But because we're more aware and better at looking after him and because he's doing a subject computer game design that he is absolutely focused on, he's doing really well. One of the things that really caught my attention about this project was the level of empathy you bring to it because you wanted to acknowledge how hard this is for teachers. You want to acknowledge how hard this is for parents. You really want to get into the minds and bodies of the kids themselves. You talked a little bit to me before about how you developed some technological tools, hacks for neurodiversity, I think is the term we talked about. What were some of the ways you were able to support Joe and keep him and his brother and you and your wife safe at home. And how does that factor in with the project? What we want to do is we want to make every stakeholder in this uh, aware of what's going on 
for everybody else. You know, sometimes I think teachers don't don't understand that a parent has been up since five dealing with a child who's got those transitional worries of going to school, has had real difficulties all morning. The kids go to school. Uh, the parents worry all day that they're going to get a phone call while they're at work to come and get them again. And then sort of two or three hours into the day, you get that call. You have to leave work, go and pick them up. And then you've got the transition to home. And then you've got an entire evening of you know difficulties with things like food and bedtimes and so on and so forth. And then by three o'clock in the morning, you eventually get them to sleep and you get maybe two or three hours sleep before they're awake again and ready to go. And that, that is a never ending cycle. So of course, when you turn up at the school to pick up your child and you've got somebody who's going to tell you about how your child has misbehaved again, it wears you down. On the other hand, if you're a teacher with 36 kids in a classroom and you know three or four of them have needs and you've got you know a lot of evidence to provide for Ofsted and all the rest of it, there's, there's a lot for them. And then if you're a child, you've got a lot going on in, in your lives too that perhaps your parents and your teachers don't understand. And so what we want to do is we want to sort of blow this up and, and sort of tell the story from everybody's angle so that everybody's aware of what goes on. Now, I don't know, when my son was about six or seven, we started to get a handle on, on these things. And we had a sort of tagline in our house of, of discipline with no emotion, because you obviously still need to discipline children. You still need to make sure that they've got their boundaries. You need to make sure they behave and they learn good manners and, and things like that. But you have to do it in a way where the child doesn't feel like they're being judged. So if you tell your child off for doing something that they know is wrong, you have to do it in a way where you don't sigh. Your face expressions don't show any judgment. It is point of fact that that can't happen. And so that's difficult because in the midst of some of the things that happen when things are getting broken and language is being used that is wholeheartedly inappropriate for a six-year-old, your pets are being threatened or whatever it might be, it can be very difficult not to be emotional. And so we use technology a lot because technology sort of bridged that gap. So having home automation where you could control your lights, being able to dim the lights automatically at seven o'clock in the evening, have the internet, the router actually go off automatically on all of his devices where it's not us pressing the button, it's the machine that's doing it. That makes a difference because if you're a parent going up to an autistic child that's halfway through a computer game and saying, right, you know, it's bedtime now, then they're, you know, I'm in the middle of this game can't you see, you know, there's an argument that starts and then, then it just get, escalates and gets out of hand. Whereas they get to know the sequence, they get to know the logistics of the machine turning it off. They know it just clicks at seven o'clock. It's not something that's being personally done to them. It just goes off. And so in their mind, when it goes off, the game stops and it's, oh, that's the time that the internet goes off. And so it makes it really easy for us as parents to use automation to calm the house down to turn games off, to bring the house to a point where, you know, we're settling for the night, but it's not, it's not us doing it. <laughs> and I think that's really, really powerful. Tell us about the teddy bear. When you talk to an autistic child, your facial expressions mean a lot. And as I said, you know, the way your mouth moves or the, if you sigh or any, anything like that is picked up on, you know, they pick up on absolutely everything. And so my son wouldn't tell me what happened during the day. It was difficult having conversations about difficulties he has. I wanted to find out where he felt safe. You know, all the things as a parent, you want to make sure that you do the best by your children. But of course, if they never talk to you about it, it's very difficult to ascertain where, where those safe spaces are. 
And what we noticed was that he will talk to us through text chat, because again, he's talking to the machine. He's not talking to us. There's no facial expressions. There's no body movement. And so we started using robotics and my specialism is robotics. I was an electronics teacher and I specialized in robotics at university. And I made a teddy bear, say made a teddy bear. I bought a teddy bear and took all the stuffing out the middle of it. And I, I put robotics inside it. And my son, as a young boy, would talk to this teddy bear and tell the teddy bear things that he wouldn't tell us. And it was it was magical because, of course, I was operating the teddy bear from another room and talking through the teddy bear. And there was a voice changer in there that made it sound not like dad. But of course, it meant that the teddy bear only came to life when I wasn't in the room. And that wasn't intentional, but it's just the nature of nature of what it was. So, of course, he wouldn't tell me that he was talking to the teddy bear. But of course, he was having these conversations about his day and he would tell me how the photocopy room was his favourite space at school because it was small, it was enclosed, and the smell of the toner made him feel safe. And those things were gold dust to us because we could then talk to the teachers and say, if you're struggling, don't crowd him, just let him go and sit in the photocopy room for half an hour. And so that's where a lot of our techniques came from, using technology to you know, foster that way through. And you also developed an app to allow better communication between you and the teacher. Tell us a little bit about that. One of the things about being a design and technology teacher is you very quickly realize that your set list is very similar to the um, special needs lists for the school because a lot of the kids that struggle in subject disciplines really come to life in practical subjects. So a lot of my students in design and technology were on the spectrum somewhere, but they were amazing. You know, the way that they could sequence their use of logic if they had to use programming languages, they were, they were just phenomenal. And one of the projects one year was one of the kids wanted to do something for a competition. And it was a big competition to design a technological solution to something in life, a need or an opportunity. And so I said to them, wouldn't it be good if we created an app for autistic children, very similar to this hacking neurodiversity project we're working on now, where a child has an iPad, they do their work on the iPad, but there was functionality in it so that they could let the teacher know if they were struggling. Uh, without the rest of the class knowing, for example. And there were tools on there to help keep them calm and to help them identify when things were going wrong and, and so on and so forth. And to also incorporate that end of day for parents and teachers. So rather than the teacher inviting the parent in every day and highlighting to all the other parents that you were that parent of that, that child, the teacher could just write things on the app and then the parents could pick it up on their mobile phones rather than, than go through that process. Anyway, the kids built the app with me we put it through to the competition. The competition was for 14 to 25-year-olds. My students were 15. And we went through the competition. We saw off 738 other teams. And my kids won the competition with it. Now, that app, we tested with a few children. And children who you know couldn't stay at school for more than a couple of days without having issue. We tested it with these children. And they stayed in school for, for quite some time without difficulty, because it incorporated wearable technology. So the teacher had a watch on, a smartwatch. There was a big button on the iPad that said, I am angry. And when the kid hit that button, the watch vibrated, the teacher looked at the watch and then could do something about it before it became an incident. And it's things like that, when you know how to navigate around these things before they become an issue, that's the best tools in the toolbox. Once the kid has you know, gone into that zone of causing a disturbance in a classroom, you've already, you've already lost. If Joe were having problems at breakfast, you could communicate to the teacher before he even arrived at school. We've spent two hours this morning struggling with this thing. 
just so you know, teacher has that information, can kind of adjust accordingly. At the end of the day, the teacher can write the experience of a classroom for that date. You don't have to have that meeting that you didn't really want to have. You can incorporate that into your evening. I mean, there's real applications for this beyond neurodiversity. You can also spot trends. I mean, it wasn't an intention of ours, but if the child is at school and there's certain points in the day where the teacher is beginning to notice certain things and puts it on the app, so the app would obviously have a timestamp on it. And what we very quickly realized after two or three weeks was that the same thing was happening at the same time during the week. And it was just before swimming or just before a drama lesson or just before another teacher took them for French or, or something like that. And so it was very easy for us then to look back and go, oh, my God, this is causing this, this anxiety. Let's take that away and see if it's better. And of course, then you realize that, you know, you can make a difference. And these things that, that beforehand seemed, you know, just random suddenly have a reason for them. What do you wish every parent of a neurotypical kid knew about neurodiversity or more specifically autism? I think that discipline with no emotion. I mean, it was the one thing that once I realized that you don't have to really say anything, you know, the way your body moves, the way your hands move, the way your mouth moves, your facial expressions can make a big difference. Understanding that when my son did something wrong, I couldn't be like a, a normal parent and tell them off and expect them to sort it then and there. Understanding that if they did something wrong, you would tell them that they'd done something wrong in a non-emotional way. And then you would give them 10 minutes to think about it and, and put it right whilst you're not in the room. And so early days, you know, my son would do something, get something out he wasn't allowed. And I would tell him to put it away and I would wait and stand over him while he, I waited for him to put it away. And of course he wouldn't. And that would escalate and we'd end up with four or five hours of, of issues. Now he'll do something. I'll say, that's not appropriate. You need to put that away. I'll give you 10 minutes and I'll come back. And for the first five minutes, you know, nothing happens, but then it gets put away and the whole incident, you know, is put to bed. You know, you don't have that four or five hour issue. And so understanding that these children, they need space. They don't mean what they're doing. You know, it's just something that is happening to them as well. So giving them the time, the space and not coming across and judging them in your facial expressions, which is incredibly difficult. My wife found it very difficult because she's quite an emotional person. She does things in a, in a very different way to me. I'm autistic. Everything to me is, is factual and logical. And no, we don't do that. There's no emotion in it to a certain extent. So I always found it easier to look after my son. And also for some parents out there, you know, there'll be one parent in, in the relationship that gets the most, that the child attacks them the most and says that they hate them. You know, in the middle of a rage, they say, I, I don't love you. I hate you. And they're attacking them because they're the ones that show the most emotion. And, you know, they put their, their hearts on their sleeves. And so that can be really tough. So I suppose the, in answer to the question, it's letting parents know that they are the best parents in the world, even though they think that they're the worst. You told me that autism is your superpower. As head of partnerships, you have embarked on some very ambitious projects. That is a very brash understatement. And you said you don't get intimidated. You don't think of failure. You just prepare, which I love. So I want to talk briefly, if we could, about a few of these projects to get a sense of them. So you started the largest school-based festival of science when you were at Seven Oaks. What was the goal of that project? And just tell us how it grew over the years. It's really interesting being autistic because, as you say, it's a superpower. I have the ability to hyper-focus on things to a level that nobody else can. The downside to it is if I'm not interested in something, I am absolutely not interested in it. <laughs> so, so that can be an issue. But when you hyper-focus, you can sit for 12 hours 
just focusing on one strategy. And so with the Science Week, it all started when I got my first job as head of science. And I wanted to run an event for our children at our school. And I started hyper-focusing on this event and putting lots of really cool stuff in place. And a few local primary schools rang up and said, I've heard about this. It sounds amazing. So we had robots and we had all sorts of things going on. Yeah, tell us just a few of the cool things. You know, one year we did a live link with the International Space Station. We did chainsaw ice sculpting. I had a six-plane air display above the town. One year I just randomly put a Spitfire in the middle of the school car park. And the, the, I'll never forget the head teacher ringing me up and saying, Graham, did you put a plane in the car park? <laughs> <laughs> How did you um, know it was me? <laughs> <laughs> you know, th- those sort of things. And in the middle of March, you know, approaching summer, I'd make it snow on campus using snow cannons because we, we were doing an event about climate. And it, it's, it's stuff like that that really captures and inspires. You know, I always say you should inspire before you educate. And bringing kids with you on things like that is easy. And then you can add the sort of education bit along the way, sort of hidden learning that, you know, they're learning without realizing it. And then hold on, just on the space station, didn't you have to ask your head teacher if you could move some satellites in the sky? Wasn't that one of the requests? Yeah, you have to book satellites sort of seven or eight months in advance. Now you you can imagine a head of science at a school going to the head and saying, look, I need to spend 700 pounds on moving some satellites for next year. Wait, what was the response? Don't make us imagine. People at my school, I've been there for for quite a while. People knew who I was and what I got up to. So there, there was always a kind of yeah, he probably will do that. But then it was, are you serious? You know, so so they, they kind of let me do things, which was great at the school. But it wasn't just that, you know, the, that event, we had a, a satellite minivan outside the theatre. That satellite minivan went through a fiber optic to the BT Tower, up to a European satellite, back down again to Paris. Then it went back up to a transatlantic uh, satellite to connect us directly to mission control in Houston. You know, this was booking of of time on satellites, booking of fiber optics. We had a direct link with the Russian space program to get link because the deputy director of the space station at the time was Russian. And we had a direct link with him. So I had him on the phone and it, it was massive, you know, eight months of work for that one event. And 1.6 million people ended up watching? Yeah, well, I didn't realise that when I had to get up on the stage and introduce this thing, we, we, we had a live link with Space Station, but we also had a, a past astronaut who was a, a UK educated individual. I got up on the stage to do the presentation introducing it. And what I didn't realise sort of half an hour before they told me was that it was going out live on NASA TV. <laughs> I'm standing on stage with an earpiece in that was connected to mission control. And I'm saying in my introduction that space station is 258 miles above the Earth's surface and it's traveling at 17,500 miles an hour. And in my ear, the mission control guy's going, yeah, that's not true. <laughs> it's actually this speed. It's actually that speed. And so it went out to a lot of people. Yeah, to say I was nervous was an understatement, but it's, it's one of the very few times that I've been nervous presenting something like that. You started this at Seven Oaks, which is an independent school, but some state schools reached out to you. And that sort of fostered a very special relationship, right? I mean, ultimately, you ended up with, I think, 15,000 state school kids taking part in this science festival every year. What's the goal there? I came to partnerships sort of fairly organically, really. I mean, it kind of evolved. As head of design and technology and head of science at an independent school, you have quite a lot of resources at hand. And that Science Week really opened my eyes because we opened to all of those primary schools in the first year. And we had something like 2,000 primary school kids turn up. And that was a bit of a shock that that was that was needed. And so the following year, we purposefully went out to invite schools uh, to the event. And we had 6,000 kids there. And it escalated to the point where after three or four years, we had 15,000 children booked in for the week-long activity. 
And it got to the point where we would launch booking at nine o'clock in the morning and a 15,000 ticket event would be fully booked within six minutes, which, I mean, it just flags the fact that, that that's a needed event. And then very quickly after that, those relationships were built. So I'd be standing on the sidelines with the teachers whilst their kids were doing workshops as part of the event. And the teachers would say to me, oh, this is wonderful. You know, we haven't got access to these resources. We haven't got this machinery. We haven't got teachers with this expertise. And so after Science Week, we would then open our doors. I would loan them our kit, you know, with microscopes or whatever it was. Whenever they weren't being used, I'd sort of go out in my car and drop them off, let them use them for a lesson and then go and pick them up. And then they started using our swimming pools. And can we use your theatre for the nativity plays? Yes, of course you can. And it just got to the point we were doing so much that I was pulled in and, and they said, why don't you do this as part of your job? So I was given a timetable allowance of two or three periods a week. And that's how it started. So that was the Festival of Science. You're now doing a steam day at Thorpe Park. This is a massive UK amusement park in 2022 for 10,000 kids who will all attend for free. And they will be able to do science-related activities all day long. This was another, you just kind of came up with this idea, thought it would be a good idea and spent some work on it. Yeah, no, exactly. And one of the things you realize when you're running these events is that there's a huge number of companies that have corporate social responsibility money, or they have scenarios where they expect their staff to go out and do something charitable once a year, or, you know, there's all these sort of things out there. But a lot of these companies will say to me that they have no avenue into education. And so I try and be that avenue for them to get in. And I wanted to continue doing our science weeks because I, I love doing it. And it was obviously something that is, is needed, but I'd moved to another uh, group of schools. So I moved to ACS International Schools in Surrey. And we've got three schools on the west side of London, but the facilities there um, didn't lend themselves to having 10,000 children sort of drop in <laughs> during the day. And so I started approaching places like conference centres and, and, and things like that and theme parks. And Thought Park grabbed uh, my attention because it's an island. There's only one way in and one way out. They have won loads of awards for STEM or STEAM-related activities. And it's the perfect opportunity to run an event because they have car parks, they have refreshments, they have first aid. For, for an events organiser, uh, it means I don't have to worry about any of the logistics for actually bringing 10,000 people together. So all I need to worry about now is bringing in the partners. So I bring in people who have construction machinery or people who work for, you know, the cyber division of the police or, you know, cool stuff. Is that inspire before you, you educate peace? And I'm bringing in things that I can slot in between the roller coasters. And the idea is that the kids have to do an educational event and give evidence of learning to gain access to the roller coasters. So we've gamified it. They get points for learning and then they can use those points to do things in a theme park. So it's fun, it's educational, it's exciting. And, you know, the big companies get to come and exhibit to not just 10,000 children, but also all of their teachers. So they all come for free and are running robotics sessions and, you know, all, all sorts of things. So, yeah, the 4th, 4th of October 2022, we will open the doors to Thorpe Park for 10,000 children. Our high school kids, the older students, will be our ambassadors and they'll be working on their soft skills, their social skills, and they'll be helping me run the event. And so a lot of the work you do through partnerships is to develop leadership skills in kids. How do you think through that? What is the sort of service ethos of your partnership work? There's two sides to it. I mean, obviously, you know, the, the future of work is about those skills. Gone is the world where you train to do one job and you stay in that job for the rest of your life. Children now, when they hit the workplace, will do 15, 20 jobs in their lifetime. They'll have to be highly adaptable. They have to be able to move between different types of jobs and different software and different ways of doing things quickly. So 
those skills, you know, being able to work in a team, being able to work individually, being able to empathize with people, you know, all those sort of things, those soft skills are a lot bigger now than they've ever been. Also, when kids are going for their university interviews, it's no longer all about grades. It's about the story that you tell. And so we want to give kids opportunities to do experiential learning, to get outside of the school, to get into organizations, to work with other people, to do lots of different things. So that's one side. So the skills side. The other side to it is creating good human beings. And I always say, you know, once the kids come out of our programs, if there's a blind person struggling to cross the road, I want one of our kids to be the first person on their arm. If there's a little child crying on a, a park bench, I want our kids to be the first person to go up and make sure they're okay and find them some help, their parents, whatever it might be. It's about creating individuals that seek opportunity and are resilient enough to do it consistently. So even when they go to help somebody and they hit a brick wall or they're not wanted, they still ask the next time. And a lot of this is transforming the concept of what service has been in schools, a dedicated volunteering day where everybody just goes and does the thing, jumps through the hoop that they're told to jump through to changing it. How? Again, inspire before you educate. Service learning is about putting children in a situation that they're not comfortable with that maybe they don't want to do, putting them in an environment where they're in a care home or they, they're doing riding for the disabled. You know, they're being put in a position where they are uncomfortable. And so they get used to it and it's normal. And, you know, if they're seeing somebody who is in a wheelchair that is struggling to get into a building, that's normal. It's not something that's different. It's not somebody who is in a wheelchair. It's just another individual that needs help. It's creating individuals that care about others. And also really giving them the experience to live and feel what it is to help. You try to create as many opportunities for kids to do stuff and not just have a bake sale, raise money and give it to a charity, which is all very well intentioned, but is also quite distant and isn't going to change a child's yeah. character. As, as I say, it's inspiring them. So once they've done it six or seven times, and they've realized that it's easy and they've realized the difference they make in the world, they'll go on to do it for themselves and they'll leave school and they'll go into whatever line of work they're in, but they'll continue to want to do it. Tell me about the ACS Schools Partnership app. What does it do? Why did you make it? So one of the difficulties with partnerships is you partner with a local school or with an organization uh, and they don't know what's available to them. And so it's a window into our into our world. So it tells the story of partnerships, it says why we do it, gives access to you know what resources we have so people can ask for it. But behind the scenes for our staff, there's an impact reporting tool. So every event we run, we put into that tool. So how many staff hours we put into it, how much it's cost us, which children have taken part, what age group, which subject discipline, everything. So at the end of the year or at any point during the year, we can take a report off it for different stakeholders with real hard data. So we're able to turn around and say, in the last month, we've had 36,000 hours of community service. And those figures are real figures, but they're staggering. You wouldn't normally gather those things. But what it also does for us is it holds us to account because every couple of months I have a look at it and it tells me if I'm swaying more towards younger students or older students or whether we're doing too many international projects or too many local projects. And it, it keeps the equilibrium in our partnerships work and makes sure that we're held accountable to what we do as a charity. When the world went into full lockdown, March 2020, what did you do specifically? We knew that lockdown was coming. When I say we knew, it was about three days <laughs> before lockdown was coming. And so, you know, my, my background, I, I've got a computing degree, I've got a teaching degree, I taught technology, you know, I was kind of in a, a perfect position being a partnerships director, 
with a teaching background in computing. And of course, you know, everything went virtual. To a lot of teachers, that was quite scary. To a lot of schools, they weren't equipped. And, you know, it put them in a really difficult position. And so before we went into lockdown, we made lots of video content about, you know, how, how do you do online classes? What do you need to do now to prepare your kids? You know, we, we need to show them how to get online, how to get onto this virtual platform before they leave school. Because on that Friday, lockdown was happening. All kids are at home, all teachers are at home. How, how do we get that ready? So we put lots in place for our partner schools and anybody that wanted it, really. We just put it out there in the, in the world, supporting people on how to use Zoom and how to connect and how to prepare your parents for what was about to happen. And then, of course, when we did lockdown, there were all sorts of issues with access to devices, access to broadband, teachers that were still struggling, parents that were trying to work at the same time as look after their kids. We just basically ramped up everything we do from a partnerships perspective on that virtual side. And so one of the things we did during the, I think it was second or third lockdown, a lot of kids weren't able to be at home because they didn't have access to devices. So we went out and bought 300 laptops. And then I spent a week driving around Surrey, dropping laptops off with individuals that needed them. So lots of examples like that. You also built quite a few respirators, did you not? If you remember at the, the beginning of the first lockdown, there was a, a huge problem because we didn't have enough respirators for people in, in hospital. And I found an Italian, I guess, inventor that had made this adapter for full face mask snorkels so that they could be used on the, on the ventilator machines. Unfortunately, the, the snorkel masks that were available in the UK were different. So I spent some time adapting his designs and then printing these things. And we, we partnered with a, a hospital in Wales for testing them and going through that process to make sure they were safe and all sorts. But then people all over the world, because it takes quite a while for a 3D printer to print a piece, but people found out about it. And I was just getting boxes in the post from Singapore, uh, you know, all over the world with bits, just with a note inside saying, I heard about the story, I hope these help. Uh, and they were using my files to print these things at their schools and then send them on to me. But just at the point where we were ready to go with them, we had enough respirators, <laughs> which, which is a great thing. Uh, but it does mean that on top of all my cupboards in my kitchen right now, I have a lot of snorkels. <laughs> well, I'd say it's time for a nice holiday. Exactly. One last project I want to talk about before we wrap up is ACS Beyond. It's a global learning platform for young people catering to students that want to go beyond the school curriculum. You've created three classes on this global platform, AI Future Leaders, Playwrights with Purpose, Learn to Become a Science Influencer. This is another interesting example of sort of spotting a need. We want some kind of enriched curriculum. It is available to everybody. It has a cost, but I think you're trying to improve the accessibility. What was the origin for that idea and what are you hoping to do with that? You can't ignore how technology has been used during the pandemic and how much it's been advanced in education because of the pandemic. And so working online and using Zoom and all the tools now that are available, it, well, it's really easy and everybody knows how to do it. There's a lot of people making online uh, educational resources, um, but we wanted to take that approach, you know, that sort of inspire before you educate, that fun factor into the online learning. And so it's not a course on this or a GCSE in that. It's not an official course. It's, well, let's bring a guy in that blows stuff up. Let's bring people in that have fun. Let's let's bring something in that inspires kids. So we described it as a sort of, the sort of YouTube-esque because children will sit and watch YouTube for hours and hours and hours. Why do they do that? And it's because it's fast-paced. It's short and swift. You know, the people on there are fairly manic to a certain extent, or they're doing something exciting or, or whatever it might be. And we wanted to bring that into education. 
is that hidden learning. It's kids being inspired and motivated to learn because they want to, not because they're being told to. And so these three courses came out of that. It's things that kids would naturally be interested in. We're presenting it in a fun, exciting way. And the hope is that, yes, there will be a charge just to cover costs, but we want to make it available to everybody. So it's in pilot phase at the moment. We, we start this Saturday and we've, we've taken on a chat for one of the courses that had done my science weeks for 10 years. And he does indoor fireworks and he teaches chemistry through indoor fireworks. He is a truly phenomenal individual and he will not fail to inspire the children on that call. It's exciting to be able to do that and for people to take it seriously. All right, we have to wrap up. And so I have to ask you the three questions I ask at the end of every interview. What is your favorite book about learning? Now, this, this is an interesting question, and a lot of people will be surprised by this, but I don't read. <laughs> and I, I have never read a fictional book in my life. Okay. I can't do it. it. It's one of the things with my autism. That said, I will drop into books about learning as and when I need to know things, or I will drop into web pages and so on and so forth. I have very much enjoyed parts of books that have been written about autistic children and books that have been written by autistic people. But in answer to your question, I, I don't read books. I, I will read a page. And by the time I've got to the bottom of the page, I've read all the words, but I haven't actually listened. Um, and it's it's part of my, my autism. All right. I have one for you that I know you're going to answer. Who is your superhero? That's a really, a really tough question. But I would have to say it would be my son. The things he's put up with, the things he's dealt with, the position he's in now, you know, he's really excelling. He's a truly phenomenal individual. And whilst he has our support, I have no doubt that life has been tough for him, but he keeps going. So I, I think he is a truly inspirational little man. And where is Joe right now and what is he doing? He's at college. He's studying his computer gaming course and he has the same ability to hyper-focus as I do. So when the teachers are setting him those 3,000 word essays for the weekend, he's finished it by the end of the day. So he's he's excelling. You know, my, my wife and I have always joked that we need to get him into a job that he's passionate about before he gets arrested. <laughs> And it's, it's true, um, but he has found a niche. He loves it. He got a gaming laptop for Christmas and he is excelling. So I, I'm really proud. And this is a neurotypical sixth form, right? Neu neurotypical college. We worried ourselves sick for about two years because we knew he was going to end up there. And moving him out of a school that's dedicated, that has the staff, that has the facilities, we, we were really concerned, but we had no need to worry. Graham Laurie, thank you so much for being with us. You're very welcome. I learned so much from Graham every time I speak with him. Here, I learned how incredibly difficult it can be to support a neurodiverse child and just how much the state is failing these families. When Graham said to me that he and his wife went to bed feeling like the worst parents in the world, when in fact they were true stars, it broke my heart. It's why I'm so excited for his Hacking Neurodiversity Project, which will be released for free on April 2nd, World Autism Awareness Day. Knowing Graham's work, it will be superb and a gift to anyone who needs help or wants to better understand neurodiversity. I'm hoping that's a big audience. I also love his partnerships work as I strongly believe that the idea of service, especially in privileged private schools, needs a lot of overhaul. And I see Graham using data and documentation to demand that the impact be real and sustained and not just about checking a volunteering box and making young people feel good about raising money. If bake sales and charity fundraisers are service 1.0, Graham is operating at the 10.0 version. I was sharing Graham's story with my husband, who said he'd love to learn how to focus like that. When I told Graham this, he laughed. You can't learn it, he explained. It's how his brain is wired. He doesn't feel fear because he just does everything he needs to do to be prepared for anything. When he gets an idea, he literally can't let it go. 
think the live link up with the International Space Station or chainsaw ice sculpting or putting a Spitfire in a parking lot. What's remarkable about Graham is how he deploys this focus and service to students, schools, and communities, and of course, his family. How lucky Joe is to have parents like Graham and his wife. Thanks for listening. We'll link to the items mentioned in today's podcast in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share it. And you can find out more about our community of global education leaders and upcoming meetups by joining our mailing list at learnit.world. In the meantime, stay safe, stay curious, and see you next week.